Well, good morning and uh, really warm welcome to the start of this new series on well-being, God's plan for your well-being. And today I'm going to spend half my time introducing, giving some context to this series. And then in the second half, I'll talk a bit about having a well-being mindset that is really important for making the most of this series. Of course, well-being is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, and rightly so, because over this last year, the, the disorientation that we faced, that the loss of connectedness, the constant disruption to our routines, fear, anxiety, all of these things affect our sense of well-being. And so it's no surprise to see uh, an exponential rise in uh, depression, in mental health issues, and even tragically uh, in suicide rates. So I think this is a timely series for us. And the series is based on a conviction that God does have a plan for your well-being. And of course, I'm aware there'll be many watching from outside the church. And if you are, if that's you, I'm so glad you're with us. Welcome uh, among us. And I would also say to you, God has a plan for your well-being. Now, what do we mean by well-being? Well, if you look in dictionaries, you'll find words like a sense of comfort, health, happiness, satisfaction, a sense of meaning or purpose. And of course, a very broad definition of well-being is simply feeling well, feeling well in every area of life. But, but then that is the point. There are many different areas of well-being and they're all interrelated. One area tends to impact all the others, both positively and negatively. And you know how on the dashboard of your car, there's a fuel gauge. Traditionally, that would be a, a dial with a, a needle on it that indicates whether the, the fuel tank is, is full or empty or, or somewhere in between. So picture your life like a dashboard with six fuel gauges that represents six different areas that are important to your well-being. Your physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, financial and vocational well-being. Think of all those areas, each of those areas as interrelated fuel tanks in your life. The level of each one impacting the levels in some or even all of the others. And each of those areas is so important to our overall sense of well-being that we're going to spend a week focusing on each one. So each week is a chance to self-assess where you are in those areas. Where is the needle on the gauge for you at the moment? And actually using this uh, this devotional book, God's Plan for Your Wellbeing, uh, using this alongside the series, if you have a copy of this, will be a great help to you in that self-assessment. And details of how you can get hold of that, uh, either a hard copy or an e-copy, are on the Wellbeing page of our website. Now, none of us are running on full all the time. So this series is applicable to all of us. We can all make progress. We can all get fuller, fill our tanks up more. But of course, sometimes we really do find ourselves running on empty because the fuel tank's been completely drained and we haven't spent any time replenishing it. So a key part of assessing ourselves against these six different areas is about coming to an understanding of what drains us and what replenishes us in each of those areas. And it will, of course, be different for everyone because we all have different personalities. But we all know it's not good to get to empty. If you're running a car, it's not good to run it to empty or to try to run on empty for very long. I remember driving through France one time a few years ago when we were coming back from holiday. I remember being able to go on holiday. <laughs> Happy days. Um, and so I was driving through France on the auto route and approaching a petrol station. And I looked down at the fuel gauge and I thought, 
it's pretty empty. I, I, I probably should stop and fill up. But, but then something kicks in, and, and some of you might recognise this in yourselves as well. Some might call it competitiveness. Others might call it stupidity. And uh, I, I sit there thinking, you know what? I reckon I can eke the fuel out. I think I can make it to the next petrol station. You know, I'm getting good miles to the gallon at this speed. The petrol stations come along pretty regularly on the auto route. But of course, 50 miles down the road and there is still no petrol station. The fuel warning light has been on for some time now and I am starting to seriously, seriously sweat, praying that God would miraculously cause a petrol station to appear and really wondering at what point I should inform my wife and children that there is a possibility of an extended roadside picnic. Now, thankfully, the petrol station did come just in time. I mean, literally just in time. And I was saved, thankfully, from my own stupidity. But the point is, I never needed to get to that situation. I could have filled the tank before it became critical, but I missed the opportunity. I ignored the opportunity and I just kept going. And so this series is about helping us to keep our tanks healthily replenished without ever having to reach crisis point. And think of the series as a journey. It's a journey that doesn't end at the end of the series. It's a lifelong journey of well-being. But for this journey, we, we have some, some helping factors, as we always need for any kind of journey. So for the first, for, for, for one, we, we have the best directions. You always need good directions on a journey. We have the best directions. We have the best guidebook. Because, you know, you can find loads of books out there about well-being. But in the Bible... We have the most influential book in history that has shaped the world as we know it over the course of thousands of years. The vast majority of books about well-being are all about how you can rescue yourself, about how you can be your own savior. But the Bible tells us the story of someone infinitely more powerful than you who comes to rescue you. And that is ultimately where our well-being comes from, the fact that we have been rescued when we were powerless to rescue ourselves. That's the Christian worldview. That's the biblical worldview. And God is ultimately the source of our well-being. It's in the Bible that we find the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And that, that's a word that's usually translated as peace. So when Jesus is described in the book of Isaiah as the prince of peace, he is the prince of shalom. And, and shalom means much more than what we might think of as peace. It, it's a word that encompasses complete wholeness, complete health, complete harmony, being rightly related to God and to others and to yourself and to the created world. Shalom is about experiencing complete well-being in every area of life, everything just as it should be. Shalom, well-being. Well-being is God's idea and it's his plan. So in the Bible, we have the best directions for the journey. And so each week of this series, we'll look at what the Bible has to say about that particular area. But we also have other help on this journey. First of all, the best, the very best help we could have from the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling in us for those who are in Christ. And by the way, if that's not you at the moment, if you wouldn't describe yourself as in Christ, well, actually, that can change today if you want. Now, let me say one thing about that. Let me say following Jesus will, in one sense, cost you everything. 
It will. It will cost you everything. You can't, you can't just have him as a bolt onto your life or some sort of insurance policy in your life. No, no, you, you submit your whole life to him because he gave everything for you, but you actually receive far more back than you will ever give up. But if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows exactly what you need and is he is the source of well-being itself. So let's be attentive to the voice and the promptings of the Holy Spirit over these next few weeks. And of course, we all have the opportunity to travel this journey with others in our small groups. You know, it is so important to share the journey with others, some of whom may have already traveled the road that you're on before. They have experiences that you haven't yet had and, and they can spur you on and they can encourage you. And of course, you can do the same for others. We're not called to do this on our own, but to do it alongside others. Now, this series is broadly based on the incredible story of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And we'll be referring to his story and in particular to one part of his story each week, along with other parts of scripture being brought in. So let me just take a few moments now to summarize his story. And I'll read the section that we're particularly going to be focusing on through the series. So Elijah's story is recorded in the Old Testament books of one and two kings. So from one Kings 17 through to two Kings chapter two. And the context is in Israel. It's around 870 BC. And there's a particularly wicked king on the throne called King Ahab. And he is married to Jezebel, who is also very wicked. She's into all sorts of nasty stuff. And she is making it her business to kill the prophets of God and raise up her own prophets to false gods like Baal. And then Elijah appears on the scene. And in the first part of Elijah's story, amazing things happen. He, he, he prophesies to Ahab that there will be no rain for the next few years as, as God's judgment on the nation and on Ahab. He prophesies that and that's exactly what happens. He experiences God's miraculous provision. He's fed by ravens while hiding just as God has instructed him to. He performs an incredible miracle of food provision for a widow. He, he raises someone from the dead. He confronts Ahab and Jezebel with great boldness, very dangerous thing to do. And he has an incredible victory on Mount Carmel where, where the fire of God comes down as proof that he is the real God. Yahweh is the real God. And the result is that the false prophets of Baal are all killed. And then following this victory, Elijah prays for the rain to come. And it does. The rain does come. And then in the power of the spirit, he is superhumanly able to outrun the king's chariot. This is all in 1 Kings 17 to 18. It's just, it's just miracle after miracle, victory after victory. But then something else happens. Then Elijah has this total collapse. So I'm going to read from 1 Kings 19 and verses 1 to 8. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, you're going to die, Elijah. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
and then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And from there, he goes on to have this incredible encounter with God. And God then sends him back. God still has things for Elijah to do. And he goes back into ministry, completely restored to do more amazing things. So that's a that's a very brief summary of Elijah's story. But what happened? What happened to him in the middle of the story? What was that about? Everything's been going great. He's he's being used powerfully by God. And then suddenly he he crashes. He he hits burnout and it seems like he's done. He's he's finished. Maybe some of you recognize that feeling yourselves. But it seems that Elijah had lost perspective on who he was and who God is. And as we come to talk about a well-being mindset, that is the first really important part of having a well-being mindset, to know who you really are. Know who you really are. Because if you have an inaccurate view of your identity, well, that is going to adversely affect your well-being because your identity, who you really are, is just such an important foundation in your life. And when you're not secure in your identity, well, you leave yourself open to any kind of wrong thinking, any wrong thought that comes into your head about yourself or maybe what others say about you that may not be true. You're kind of open to being affected by that or maybe what you see on social media, which, let's face it, can be a a massive comparison trap. Comparison with others, comparing yourself with others always, always ends up with misery. It makes you feel insecure and miserable. You know, it might be seeing someone else's photos uh, on Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, and their photos portray this really exciting, fulfilled life that doesn't actually reflect reality. But it makes you insecure about your life and, and you then feel the need to share photographic highlights of your life to put on display to others to make out that you're living that kind of life as well. Or it may be a popular opinion that is Uh, widely shared about a current issue that actually at the core of your being, you you don't really agree with that opinion, but you've seen how people are shamed for expressing a different point of view, so you go along with the popular narrative. But all of that is rooted in insecurity, insecurity in your identity that doesn't help your sense of well-being. We need to have a security in our identity that doesn't depend on circumstances. We need to know who we really are. And it seems clear that Elijah, in the early part of his story, he really did have an an absolute sense of security in his identity and in his relationship with God and what he was being called to do. Completely secure. We, We see this supernatural boldness in him that leads him to confront King Ahab at a time when people like him, God's prophets, were being killed. You know, that's a boldness that comes out of great security and the boldness to perform miracles, to raise the dead. But when we find him in the desert in chapter 19, afraid and wishing he was dead, it's like, well, what's happened? It's like he's forgotten who he really was. And in verse four, he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. 
I mean, it's like he's fallen into the comparison trap and he's lost perspective. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your identity is utterly secure. And it's not determined by your past or by your current circumstances or by what others think or say or by what social media says. No, your identity as a Christian is determined by being a child of God. And and this is absolutely crucial to grasp because the foundational beliefs that you have about yourself and about God and about the world will massively, massively influence the whole of your life because behavior always follows belief. So much of the battle that we face is in the mind and our behaviors, our outward behaviors won't change if our thinking doesn't change. It's not possible to consistently behave in a way that is at odds with what you really believe deep down about yourself. So it is essential as a Christian to really know who you are in Christ. And if again, if you're not yet a Christian to know who the Bible says you can be if you come to Christ to know what the Bible says about you if you are born again, if you're a follower of Jesus. And, you know, there is way too much to say here. But on our well-being page on the website, we've put a series of biblical truths that speak about who you are and about who God is. And they've taken those truths from the Freedom in Christ course, and they're so good. So go and look at those truths and get them deep into your soul. So you don't just know that God loves you in your head, but you really know. Right at the core of your very being, you really know that you are deeply loved by God. And that is your identity. And it cannot be changed. That identity cannot be changed because it's not dependent on your actions. It's completely dependent on what Jesus has already done in his death and resurrection. And it is unchangeable. So if you're in Christ, your identity is fixed. And we think of it like this. Nothing can change the fact that you are your biological parent's child. You can't alter your DNA. Now, you can disown your parents. You can displease your parents. You may have never known your parents or you may never see them because of circumstances or because of death. But nothing can change the fact that you are their child. Biologically, you are their child. Now, when you were born again, you became God's child. And it's like you, you received his DNA. And, and so here are some things that the Bible does say about you. God's spirit lives in you, Romans 8, 9. You share in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. Nothing can separate you from his love, Romans 8, 39. No one can snatch you out of his hand, John 10, 28. I mean, no wonder it's called the gospel. The gospel means good news. No wonder it is called good news. If you're a Christian, The Bible refers to you as a saint. You might not feel like a saint, but that is what you are called, a a saint, a holy one, a righteous one. Again, not because of your own righteousness, but because of his. We need to be clear, absolutely clear on our identity, on our unchangeable identity, the identity that has been given to us. Because then once you're clear on that, once you know the truth, then you can reject any thoughts that come into your mind that are not true. That's what the Bible calls taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, making your thinking line up with the truth, which will then impact your behavior. Now, of course, as Christians, we know we have an enemy. There is a spiritual battle that goes on. And while 
he can't do anything to change your fundamental identity. If he can get you to believe a lie about who you are, well, then he can render you pretty ineffective and destroy your sense of well-being. You see, the truth is, the reality is, no child of God, no one who has been born again is inferior or useless or dirty or abandoned. But if the enemy can get you to believe those sorts of things about yourself, well, that's how you'll act. And you might say to me, well, you know, you, you don't know what's been done to me in my life. You know? And you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't know. You may have suffered some terrible, terrible things in your life. But I do know this. It doesn't change who you are in Christ. Or you might say, yeah, but you don't know how bad I've been, the things I've done, even since being a Christian. And you're right. I don't know. But I do know that it doesn't change who you are in Christ. We're told that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he loved you then, well, that certainly hasn't changed now. So much to say about that, but I've got to move on. The point is you need to know who you really are. You need to know who you really are. But you also need to know where you're really at. Know where you're really at. And the more secure we are in our identity in Christ, the more honest and open we can be about how we're actually doing. You know, where are the needles pointing on that dashboard in your life? A bit of conjecture here. Uh, You know, it's not explicitly said in the story at all. But maybe, maybe for Elijah, in all the victories, in all the, the miracles, ministry, confronting evil, maybe he just forgot to take a day off. You know, maybe he forgot to take time to recover and rest and replenish. I mean, even Jesus needed to do that. Now, admittedly, we do see times when Elijah withdraws and prays. But I don't know, maybe he thought everything's going well, so I'm just going to keep going. A bit like me on my journey in France. But actually, he wasn't aware of how he was actually doing, that actually his fuel tanks were draining and it was disguised by the successes that he was enjoying in God. And again, I'm guessing here, I'm, I'm reading into the story, but what we certainly do see is that suddenly something happens. Suddenly Elijah is susceptible to fear with this threat that comes from Jezebel, this death threat that comes from her. And this fear suddenly exposes where he's really at. And he, he spirals, he spirals into burnout very quickly with every fuel gauge on empty. I mean, he is physically, he's spent, he's run miles and miles into the desert. He's emotionally burnt out. He, he wants to die. He feels spiritually completely defeated, even after all the victories he's had. Relationally, he's totally isolated. He, he sent his servant away. One person who could have helped him, he sent him away. He's totally on his own, completely isolated. Vocationally, he's ready to quit. He's done. And there he's there in the desert with no provision. How? How does that happen? How does someone so anointed reach that point? And there's no suggestion of any sin going on here either. Well, James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. And of course, that's in the context of of James making a point about the power of prayer and how how we can pray as as righteous people as well. But but Elijah was, was a man just like us. And we all know that life can be going great and then we can just run out of steam 
because our fuel tanks have been getting low and we just didn't realize. We haven't been looking after ourselves. And during this challenging season that we're in right now, that can feel all the more exaggerated. Don't be surprised when you feel emotionally volatile. Don't be surprised when physically you feel a bit below par. Don't be surprised at feeling low during this time. So we need to be able to take stock of our lives. We need to know what drains us and how we replenish in all of those different areas and then put things in place in our lives to make sure we are replenishing even when things are going really well to avoid getting to empty, to avoid hitting burnout. And so these six fuel gauges, they're a really helpful tool to honestly assess where you're really at and to open up conversation on that with others in your small group or in your group of friends. So know who you really are, know where you're really at. And then finally, it's so important to know that you really can change. Know that you really can change It's one thing to identify how we're doing, where we're at, but we can so easily become paralyzed by a a sense of not being able to change or find breakthrough, a sense of inertia. But you can. You can change. You can find breakthrough. You know, none of us are exactly where we want to be. We're all on a journey of growing in well-being. And sometimes it can feel like we've got stuck or, or even going backwards, you know, and the tires are just spinning in the mud and You just want to give up. But, you know, the reason that I think, the reason I have a confidence that you really can change is rooted in the things I was saying earlier about about what and who we have with us on this journey. Remember, we have the best directions, the truth of Scripture. And and just as it says in John chapter 8, for those who follow Jesus' teaching, it says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So keep feeding yourself with a diet of truth. Check out those truths on the well-being page. Internalize that truth. Is there a lie that you're believing about yourself or about God that is not in line with the truth? Because if you believe that he's abandoned you, that's not in line with the truth. Or if you believe that he doesn't really love you or he doesn't love you as much as some other people, no, that's not in line with the truth. And you wouldn't be alone in feeling those things. I mean, just look at the Psalms. In fact, use the Psalms to help you pray and express these things to God. He wants you to come to him when you're feeling like that. So we have the Bible, the truth of the Bible, but we also have others alongside us on the journey, those in our small groups, people who can see things that you don't see. Because we all have blind spots and we need people around us, people who will encourage us, who will spur us on and people we can trust and that we can be accountable to. But of course, you also have someone else rooting for you, someone else equipping you, someone else who is spurring you on. You know, Elijah was in a desperate place. He, he, he had given up. He had had enough. He lost perspective. Uh, he had lost sight of the truth and he had no small group with him. But God sent an angel to care for him. And, you know, I love the way the angel sees him lying there and says, get up, you know, get up and eat, get up. And then a bit later, the angel again says, get up, get up. And so Elijah got up. He got up. And God then from there takes him on a journey that that leads to his well-being and his ministry being completely restored. Now, we don't have to wait for God to send an angel because he's already sent the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
The Holy Spirit is described as the helper, the encourager, the strengthener, the counselor. God himself dwelling in you, speaking to you, equipping you, encouraging you, strengthening you. The same God who loves you so much that he went to the cross for you and he rose again so that you could know new life. He hasn't abandoned you. He doesn't abandon you. He loves you. He loves you so deeply. He loves you so passionately. And he knows exactly what you need. He knows you inside out. He knows your every need. God, the father who said to Jesus at his baptism before Jesus had done anything in his ministry. This is what God, the father said to him. He said, you are my son whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And God, the father speaks the same words over you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You know, I paid everything to adopt you and you are my delight. You are my delight. Know who you really are. Know where you're really at and know that you really can change. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so as we continue on this journey together and we go on into this series, my encouragement to you is to keep coming to Jesus, keep coming to him through the Holy Spirit. He loves you, he is for you and he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Shalom the prince and the source of well-being. Bless you.